taking the party out of politics. This is a podcast about understanding how politics is supposed to work, why it isn't working as well as it should be working, and what we might be able to do about it. Because by understanding a little bit more clearly how things are supposed to work and why they're a bit messed up, we might be able to get things to work a bit better, perhaps even a lot better. This is a little journey which we're taking together about the systems and functioning of politics. Systems which we should all understand because those systems affect all of our lives all of the time. Left-wing or right-wing, international, intergovernmental or parish council. And this podcast is about how we might be able to make those systems work a bit better by understanding what is supposed to happen, by understanding why it isn't always happening in the way it's supposed to, and by understanding what sorts of things we might do to make things better. This is season one, in which we're taking a look at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of us, the voters. In season two, we'll be looking at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of someone trying to get elected, and then trying to do a good job. Finally, in season three, we'll be looking at what we might be able to do to make things work a bit better. In our introduction, we had an overview of what the issues are and a general idea of the route we're going to take through this and why this is important. In episode two, we started to think about why we have a government at all and the tacit, perhaps unspoken, agreement which exists between those who do the governing and those who agree to be governed, what we call the social contract. In episode three, we discussed what we mean by the word democracy, along with other ideas, such as consideration for others and respect for minorities. Then we moved from there to explore the particular form of representative democracy which we use. And in episode four, we started to explore how the mechanics of electing representatives and ultimately a government, well, how all of that is supposed to work and why it isn't working as well as perhaps we imagine that it should do. In fact, perhaps why it is actually impossible for it to work given the way in which the system is set up. For example, how is it possible to be elected on the basis of a set of promises for which some people vote, but then once you get elected, how is it possible to be fair and even-handed and to represent the needs of every one of your constituents, even the ones who didn't vote for you? And if you're elected with less than 50% of the people who voted, then that's even harder. And how can a government claim to represent the country if it is elected with less than 50% of the votes cast nationally, which has been the case for every government in the UK since 1935. Well, you won't be shocked to know that it isn't really possible to do all of those things, or, or even any of those things. Our governments represent us. But then again, they don't represent us. They are our representatives internationally, for example, in negotiating our foreign policy and nationally in deciding who pays how much tax and how much money is spent on education or healthcare or defence or transportation. But then again, they aren't really representative of us. Most of us didn't vote for them. Or, to put it another way, most of us voted against them. So our governments represent us, but they aren't really representative of us. Now, this is an important distinction, not a careful bit of logic or grammar. We'll come back to this idea again during season two. The individual people who are elected, our representatives, our MPs, 
just have to do the best that they can, muddling through, trying to do what they think is right, what they think is best, keeping an eye on trying to be reasonably good and fair where that's possible, but also keeping an eye on their responsibilities as a member of a particular political group, and also keeping an eye on making sure that they're clearly doing the right things by the voters who did vote for them, so that they can get elected next time. Now, if you were counting, that's at least three eyes. We do get good people who are elected, and they probably are mostly trying to do their best for as many people as possible. But as we will see in Series 2, that's mostly because they are good people, not because the systems encourage that. Or even because the systems make it easy. Because the systems don't make it easy for the people who are elected. In fact, the systems make it pretty difficult for everyone involved. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Back to today. So today we're going to make sure that we're clear about the different roles which are played by our government and by our parliament, because sometimes it can seem as though these are the same thing, but they absolutely are not. OK, so let's look at the role of government versus the role of parliament. Let's put all the electoral problems to one side for a moment. Don't worry, we're not forgetting about them. We will come back to them again later. In the meantime, let's look at the difference between parliament and the government. Many people might think they are the same thing, but they really aren't. And if we're clear about the differences about how they interact, we should be able to understand some other problems with how the system isn't working in our best interests. Now, let's start with Parliament. Parliament is in two parts. All the elected local representatives become members of Parliament, MPs, in the House of Commons, and there are 650 of them. Then there are also... 795 eligible members of the House of Lords, who are mostly appointed for life, not elected. Together, they make up Parliament, and Parliament is there to represent the interests of the people and the interests of the country. So, together, those two parts, the two houses, the House of Commons and the House of Lords, together, all of the members, the elected ones in the Commons and the not elected but appointed for life ones in the Lords, together, they are in Parliament to represent our interests and to make sure that the government takes our interests into account. The government needs Parliament to agree before it can make any new laws or raise any new taxes. Sometimes MPs get together in the House of Commons and discuss things all together. In fact, the House of Commons isn't really big enough for all 650 MPs and if they are all there, perhaps on days when something really important is being decided, then many of them have to stand. A lot of the time, though, MPs work in other rooms, some in the Palace of Westminster, which is the building we think of as Parliament, some in nearby buildings, for example, in Portcullis House, which is just across the road from the Palace of Westminster. Sometimes MPs are working in their offices, perhaps individually, perhaps with their support staff, assistants, secretaries, researchers and so on. Perhaps in small rooms. Sometimes they're working in various larger spaces, meeting rooms and so on, perhaps in small committees, doing some detailed work together. So what does Parliament actually do? Well, we've touched on this. Parliament's work, well, the clue is in the word itself. It's about talking. Parliament has to look closely at, we use the word scrutinise, Parliament has to look closely at how the government is running things and what the government is planning to do. Parliament is expected to make sure that decisions are open and transparent, workable and efficient and fair and non-discriminatory. 
all really important stuff. We'll come back to look at the processes which Parliament follows a little later. For now, let's just leave it there. Parliament is where all our MPs do a lot of their work and where a lot of the members of the House of Lords also do a lot of their work because even though they are not elected but appointed for life, a lot of them really are trying to do a good job, at least as far as they understand it, on behalf of the people and on behalf of the country. Some individually, some in small groups, some of them all together. A lot of reading, a lot of thinking, a lot of discussions. At least in theory, a lot of calling the government to account. And we'll have a lot more to say about that later on. Well, how is that different to the government? I'm glad you asked. So, the government. We've also already touched on this, just a bit. The government comes out of two things we have already mentioned. Having a plan to get things done and political parties. OK, so let's explore that a little bit more. So what is the government? The government is the group of people who are responsible for running the country. The government is a smaller group within the overall group of 650 MPs. The government is selected by the political party, which has the most MPs, and usually consists of MPs from that party. There are exceptions. Most of the time, the leader of the party which has a majority of MPs after an election, remember that's a majority in Parliament, not a majority of the votes, well, the leader of the party which has a majority of the MPs becomes the Prime Minister. We can talk about how someone becomes the leader of a party another time. It's quite complicated and the political parties use different systems. For now, let's just work with the fact that there is a leader of the party which has a majority of MPs after the election probably a leader whom all the voters knew would be the party leader who would become the Prime Minister if their party won. The Prime Minister then selects the other 25 members of the Cabinet. There are four what are called great offices of state. Prime Minister, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Foreign Secretary, Home Secretary. There are 18 other Ministers of the Crown. Now mostly these are heads of government departments such as the Ministry of Defence and they have the title Secretary of State for da-da-da in this case, Secretary of State for Defence. And there are also four other members of the Cabinet. So these 26 members of the Cabinet, remember 25 of them selected by the Prime Minister, they are the government. They also have seats in Parliament, but most of their work is done in government departments. So let's look at that power the Prime Minister has. At first glance, this makes it look as though the Prime Minister has all the power all the major positions of power, the members of the cabinet, are directly appointed by the Prime Minister. And the Prime Minister can dismiss the ministers too and appoint new ones. And that makes it look as though the Prime Minister holds all the cards. If the Prime Minister can dismiss you as Minister for Paperclips and Stationery Extras, then you probably feel as though you need to make sure that the colour of the post-it notes that are provided to cabinet meetings is the PM's favourite colour. However... Remember that the Prime Minister is appointed by their party. The Prime Minister is the leader of the party which has the most seats in Parliament. So the Prime Minister is either appointed by the MPs of that party, the ones who've been elected, or by the wider membership of the party, or some complicated combination of the two. I mean, if there's an opportunity to make things more complicated, particularly with systems that have been around for centuries, then we can be pretty sure that our political parties will have explored most of the ways in which things could be made as complicated as possible and then change them again after that as well. So the Prime Minister can appoint and dismiss the Cabinet Ministers, but the Cabinet Ministers are usually 
all members of the wider political party which has chosen the Prime Minister to be Prime Minister. So the power to appoint and dismiss the Cabinet Ministers is actually an even more complicated balance of power and favours and keeping everyone happy or equally unhappy than the arguments might be in your house as to who gets to keep hold on to the remote control for the TV, who watched which favourite programme last Tuesday, who did the washing up, who's done their homework, and who's had a bad day because their boyfriend broke up with them and so deserves a bit of extra sympathy. That might be complicated, but the balance of keeping everyone happy, or at least not too unhappy, in their wider political party is actually even more complicated. Well, it's at least as complicated as the live-action reality drama in your own lounge game of TV remote diplomacy. So, yes, the Prime Minister has power, but that power is dependent on keeping other people happy, so it's a very delicately balanced power. Sometimes it's a power which depends on charisma and charm, on power and on how high the personal ratings are in the public opinion polls, and they can have nothing to do with how good a minister is at their job or how good the Prime Minister is. We'll come back to that one again as well in Series 2. Anyway, back to the government. The government is responsible for deciding how the country is run, for deciding how to manage things day to day, for setting taxes and for choosing what to spend public money on and choosing how best to deliver public services, such as the National Health Service, the police and armed forces and welfare benefits like the state pension and the UK's energy supply. Sometimes the government just has to try to manage things which happen. For example, in 2020, the COVID-19 outbreak was not part of the plan for any political party, but the government, which had just been elected in December 2019, well, they just had to try to manage the situation as well as they could. Whether they are successful partly depends on how well positioned the country already is to deal with situations, and partly on how well the government ministers, the cabinet, how well they organise things. However, most of the time, the government is trying to take the initiative on things. What things does the government try to take the initiative on? Well, in theory, the government should be trying to do a combination of two things. First, the government should be trying to do what is in the best interests of everyone in the country, because the government is leading Parliament, and Parliament is made up of the MPs who are representing all the people in each of their constituencies, not just the ones who voted for them. Second, the government should be trying to do what it promised to do in its election manifesto. This is the plan for what the government will do, which is presented before an election. So this is the list of things which people who voted for the winning party wanted. Well, in theory. Why do I say in theory? Because is it likely that A, the best candidate locally, and B, the best set of policies, the best manifesto, and C, the best party nationally, are always all successfully selected with one single vote? Well, we've certainly discussed that before, so I won't go on about that again. But, of course, doing both of these things simultaneously is a very special juggling act, perhaps almost always an impossible juggling act. It's certainly a little bit like the magician behind the curtain. Have you watched The Wizard of Oz recently? Insofar as it works best if you don't look too closely and if you don't ask too many questions. But, of course, that's exactly what we are here to do. To ask questions. And if you've ever been in a pub where no one apparently voted for the government, but where the general consensus is that everything that is currently wrong with the country is the government's fault, then it's an impossible juggling act at which most governments fail, ensuring that they are fair and even-handed only insofar as they are keeping everyone equally unhappy. 
Okay, so Parliament and the government are different. They have different roles and do different things. The government is the group of people who are responsible for running the country. The government sets taxes, chooses what to spend public money on, and decides how best to deliver public services. Parliament is all our elected representatives, MPs in the House of Commons, plus the members of the House of Lords. They are there to represent our interests and to make sure that our interests are taken into account by the government. The government cannot make new laws or raise new taxes without Parliament's agreement. Parliament looks closely at the government's plans and monitors the way the government is running things. Government ministers are required to come to Parliament regularly to answer questions, to respond to issues raised in debates, and to keep both houses informed of any important decisions they take. The idea is that this makes it possible for Parliament to hold the government to account for its actions. So, in detail, what does Parliament actually do? Well, that big thing is checking the work of government. One of Parliament's main roles is to examine and challenge the work of the government by questioning ministers, through debates over complicated problems and in committee work. There's a lot more to be said about this, but we'll come back to more of that during Series 2. For now, let's just have a quick overview of what is supposed to happen. So, in checking the work of government, a big thing is questions. MPs and members of the House of Lords can question government ministers. This can be done either in writing or on the floor of the House during the regular oral question times. Ministers from each government department attend the House of Commons on a rotor basis to answer oral questions. Each major government department is allocated to a particular day of the week with a rotor agreed by the government and opposition parties. There are also special days for the Prime Minister to be questioned, what we call Prime Minister's questions. Another big thing that Parliament does in checking the work of government is through debates. So debates in the House of Commons can be on any subject. The debates provide an opportunity for MPs to discuss government policy, to discuss proposed new laws, and to discuss what's happening, topical issues of the day. Another thing which Parliament does in checking the work of government is through committees. So there are committees, or smaller groups of MPs, and possibly members of the House of Lords, and sometimes the House of Lords have their own committees, and these committees look at specific policy issues or legislation in some detail. This is called scrutinising. And the committees are sometimes called scrutiny committees. Different committees have different roles, ranging from offering advice to producing reports or altering legislation. The House of Commons has departmental select committees. These were established to shadow the government departments and to scrutinise the spending, administration and policy of each department. Both houses, House of Commons and House of Lords, both houses have permanent and temporary committees. MPs and members of the House of Lords also work together in joint select committees, and the government issues responses to most of the committee reports. Now, there are some other things that Parliament does as well. One of those things is making laws. That's a central role of Parliament, to make new laws as well as to make changes to existing legislation. Most new laws and changes are proposed by the government, but Parliament has to agree to them. So, although it's the government which proposes the new laws and changes, at least most of the time, and although it's the government which leads and directs the discussions and the direction of the new laws and changes, it's Parliament which actually decides on whether to vote to agree to the new laws and changes. It's Parliament which actually makes the laws. Well, in theory, anyway. 
Another thing that Parliament does is checking and approving government spending and taxation. The budget is presented to the House of Commons by the Chancellor of the Exchequer each year. MPs debate the budget proposals and scrutinise the finance bill which brings them into law. Another thing which Parliament does is just having the authority. It's the ultimate authority. Parliamentary sovereignty is a principle of the UK Constitution. It makes Parliament the supreme legal authority in the UK. Parliament can create or end any law. So the government, led by the Prime Minister, is setting the pace. But Parliament is doing the checking up, the agreeing or not agreeing, the making sure that all of our interests are fairly and properly represented and taken into account. Or at least that's how it's supposed to be working. So where have we got to so far? There are lots of problems with the way in which we select our elected representatives, our MPs. These range from the challenge of trying to achieve those three things with one vote to the problem of first past the post, both at the constituency level and at the national level. When all the MPs get to Parliament, the party which won the most seats in the election then forms the government. The government then drives national policy and manages the way things are run, with Parliament trying to check up on government in detail. Things are supposed to be balanced so that Parliament should be in ultimate charge, what we call that parliamentary sovereignty, and so that the government can't just do whatever it wants with no limits or controls. Today, we looked at the balance between government and Parliament. Our government is quite a small bunch of our MPs, about 26 or so out of the 650 who are elected, and they are trying to set the agenda to make a plan, to carve out a path to the future for our country. And Parliament, which is all the rest of the MPs, plus the 26 ministers who are in the government, Parliament is trying to check up on what the government is trying to do. Trying to make sure that the plans have been well thought through. Trying to make sure that everything has been taken into account. Trying to make sure that avoidable mistakes aren't made. And trying to make sure that all of our interests have been taken into account. So government is trying to make things happen. Parliament is trying to make sure that those things are reasonable and that they are in all of our interests. Now, quick spoiler alert, this balance between government and Parliament, well, it isn't working as well as it could do. And just a quick quiz for you, can you guess what one of the big reasons is that this balance isn't working as well as it could do? Can you see what it is yet? Well, I'll give you a clue. Think of the title of this podcast. The title is Taking the Party Out of Politics. So, can you guess what one of the biggest reasons is why the balance between government and parliament isn't working as well as it could do? Well, more on that in Series 2. Now, in Series 2, we're going to explore further why the balance between parliament and government isn't working the way that it's supposed to. We'll be looking at how our political systems are supposed to work and how they aren't working from the point of view of the people trying to work within the system. First, we'll look at the challenges involved in getting elected and the resulting pressures which that puts on candidates and the sorts of candidates who are prepared to put up with all of those pressures. Second, we will look at the challenges involved in getting things done once a candidate is elected as an MP. Quite a lot of challenges, as it happens. So, next time on Taking the Party Out of Politics... Next time, we will be looking at the final piece of our impossible challenge, 
you know the one, trying to achieve three completely different things with one vote, to choose a good local representative from a political party which looks as though it could form a competent national government and which appears to have a good set of policies to do the sorts of things which we think should be done. All three things, once every five years, with just one vote. And we've looked at the challenges of choosing a local representative who is actually representative of us, and then how challenging it is for our elected representative to represent the needs and wants of all their constituents, particularly if less than half of them actually voted for that representative. We've also looked at the challenge of having a national government which, in the UK, has not received more than 50% of the national votes cast at any election since 1935, even though some of them go quite close. Are we really successfully choosing a government which will represent us if the norm is that most of us actually voted against that government? Now, is our representative democracy actually very representative at all? Well, the final piece of that impossible challenge is the list of policies which political parties also offer us. Their list of electoral promises. Vote for us and we will do this and this and that. The final impossible challenge for us voters is to understand how seriously we should take that list of promises. How much attention should we pay to political parties' manifestos? And perhaps equally importantly, how much fuss should political parties be allowed to make about things which were or were not in their manifesto after they've won or, or even after they've lost an election? So, next time, manifestos. For now, thank you for listening. If you would like to access transcripts of this podcast or any podcast in this series, please go to www.talktogether.info and follow the links to our podcast page. If you have any feedback, you can contact us at any time by emailing info at talktogether.info. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then I hope you'll take the time to tell your friends. And perhaps you could also take a moment to give us a rating wherever you found us. That not only helps other people to find us, it also just really makes us feel appreciated. That would be great. Thank you.